1: Oh, I feel like everybody has thoughts on this. So, of course, we had to make it our hot question of the day. So, the koi at the Dr. Sun Yat-sen Classical Chinese Garden are once again under siege from that hungry otter. Have you seen the picture of the otter, too? I tell you, I saw it, and the first thing I thought about was the movie Zootopia. And anybody out there who has seen the movie Zootopia knows exactly what I'm talking about. So, we're asking you for our hot question of the day today. How should the park board solve this problem? Okay. should they first option, let the otter win and just move all the koi and no longer have koi there? Should they, option two, reinforce the park to absolutely make sure that the otter can't get in? Or should they, option three, have permanent otter traps so that, you know, They can always be on the lookout for this otter. They thought they had solved this problem, right? After the last go-round that they had, they thought, okay, the otter's gone, everything is fine, koi back in the garden, back in the water. Nope, not the case. So which one of those do you think works? Let the otter win, move the koi, reinforce the park so the otter can't get in, or should they have permanent otter traps? That's our hot question of the day. You can find it online. You'll find it at CKNW on Twitter or at simisarah 980 You can email me, simi at cknw.com. Use our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ, three three one two eight nine nine. 2899 We put it up about 20 minutes ago, and I have to say it's already very, very active is what we're getting. Lots of results on this, and it is close. 44% of people right now who voted to say let the otter win just move the koi. 37%, so right behind them, saying permanent otter traps to get the otter. Where do you come down on this? You let us know. We'll be checking back in throughout the show today. Well, let's talk this morning about a story that is generating a lot of discussion and a lot of attention on our websites, which, by the way, just check it out at globalnews.ca. Over the past year, reporters at Global News have reviewed more than 79,000 water tests in 33 different cities right across this country from one end to the other, And what they found is that hundreds of thousands of Canadians have been unknowingly exposed to lead in potentially dangerous concentrations, and some of them right here in BC, as a matter of fact. So in this Global News report, they discussed how cities are using the flush test to determine the amount of lead in drinking water. That test, though, has come under criticism because in order to test if there is lead in the water, they have to leave the tap running for five minutes before obtaining a sample. Now, is that how you pour your glass of water out of the tap? Do you leave your water running for five minutes before you actually pour yourself that glass of water? I'm guessing that you don't. But despite that criticism, uh, Global Reporters still did use the flush test for their reporting. Have a listen.
0: Even based on flush tests, lead levels in Montreal still
1: reached an average comparable to levels in Flint when similar testing was done there. In Prince Rupert, British Columbia and three cities in Saskatchewan, the investigation found that average lead levels exceeded Health Canada's guideline of five parts per billion.
2: You know, in Montreal, like people were getting tested by the city. They were told because of the testing method used that they had a low level or an acceptable level. And then we went back and tested with different methods that are are recommended by Health Canada. And we found much higher levels. So I think it's it's an issue about transparency versus secrecy.
1: Yeah, so there's a lot to be concerned about here. So if you want to read the full analysis and everything that they found, go to the website globalnews.ca and you can get all of the information. But what was clear, though, is that there are many communities across the country who have this problem. We wanted to talk about Metro Vancouver, what our water system is like here. So joining us now is Inder Singh, Director of Policy, Planning and Analysis of Water Services at Metro Vancouver. Thank you so much for joining us today.
3: You're very welcome. Good morning.
1: I guess you're probably getting a lot of questions about this today, I would imagine.
3: Well, I happen to be uh, actually in in a meeting right now that I'm chairing and pulling up for this interview. So, yes, we've got lots of questions coming in.
1: Okay. So, first and foremost, is there lead in the drinking water of Metro Vancouver?
3: Well, Metro Vancouver source waters have uh, negligible, if not any, amount of lead uh, in it. And the lead is actually an issue within the distribution system. So... The drinking water will only have lead if it has been exposed to it um, from the source to the tap.
1: Right. So when it's leaving the source, there's no lead. But what you're saying is the pipes are the problem.
3: The pipes or any of the um, particular fixtures that might be associated with that distribution system. So the pipes themselves actually are not a major concern either because they're not usually made out of lead material. Uh, When it comes to the local distribution system, it's mostly around um, the types of connections, whether they're made with... um, lead types of connections or solder that's used to connect pipes and also the actual faucet fixtures themselves could have potential lead because there's a brass component that used to use lead before in some of the older versions.
1: Right. That sounds like though it can be so random then who might find lead in their drinking water.
3: Exactly. So if you were in a in a newer premise where a lot of the the lead is not there as part of the premise plumbing because a lot of changes have evolved as lead has been identified in systems and there's been several changes to the plumbing code to eliminate lead but it's really site-specific.
1: Okay so then how would people know then Ender, if they if this is something that impacts them?
3: Well the only way to know for sure would, would be uh, based upon your individual tap sample because as I mentioned uh, Metro Vancouver's source waters and water that's transmitted through the major transmission system would not detect any lead likely the distribution systems themselves and a lot of the municipal systems wouldn't either, but really the lead issue would show up at the tap. So it's really a premise uh, plumbing issue and the only way to find out would be to have your water specifically tested.
1: Right. So does that mean that it re- So it's up to the individual homeowner because if it's a system-wide problem, we know it's not a system-wide problem.
3: And that's correct because there's an um, extensive amount of sampling that is done both at the Metro Vancouver transmission system as well as the municipal distribution system but obviously uh, premise plumbing is not tested routinely on that basis and so the the best way to find out if you have an issue is to look into that and as you've uh, also alerted it's a lot to do with the contact time. Lead uh, essentially is not there unless it has a chance to have contact with the water for a significant period of time so it's usually these first flush samples that are highest in terms of lead levels.
1: So if you have an older home, um, is it, should you be doing the flush test then? Should you be like letting your water run before you drink it?
3: Uh, it's, um, again, an idea that without knowing, uh, you'd be potentially not um, using water wisely. So that's obviously a bit of a concern from that perspective. Yeah. But health is also a significant issue as well, right? So with respect to your, your, your premise plumbing, if you're not aware of exactly what um, is in it, If you've had the plumbing recently replaced, then you probably would not have uh, much of an issue, but even if it's an older home. But if it has the original plumbing that still has a lot of um, lead-based solder, as an example, and some of the older brass fixtures that were more higher in terms of lead content, those are all potential sources where that water could be coming out in those first flush samples.
1: Uh, Do we know how old a home has to be before this is a concern?
3: Well, it would be, again, the... Changes that took place happened uh, a couple of decades ago, so it would have to be something much older than
1: that. Right. So really, then people have to pay for their individual testing. That seems like a bit scary, though, doesn't it?
3: Well, it's, uh, again, one of those issues where it's a matter of the exposure and the risk, and Health Canada does obviously a very good job in terms of raising that as an awareness issue. So five parts per billion is a pretty low number, and uh, it was actually quite low even when it was at 10 However, we know the, the consequences of lead are, are quite significant, as far as, especially when it comes to um, children, those that are more potentially exposed to, to its negative effects, which are clearly there. And um, it is important for people to understand exactly what their their water is like. And again, given the variability, the only way to be very sure about that is to understand what's in your actual water and also how it's used. So that, when I talk about flushing, and I think I heard earlier in the program, uh, five minutes was being talked about it's really how long does it take for that stagnant water that happens to be in the faucet fixture and in the immediate plumbing upstream of that to clear its way through the um through the pipe and that may only take um, a minute or two as opposed to five minutes
1: right okay well listen thank you so much for the advice today
3: Excellent. Thank you very much for having me.
1: That's interesting. Director of Policy Planning and Analysis of Water Services at Metro Vancouver. I want to take a look at what's happening in federal news, federal politics, that is. And as you've heard in the news, Elizabeth May has announced that she is stepping down as leader of the Federal Green Party effective immediately. She told a news conference that uh, within the last hour, Joanne Roberts will be the interim leader. Right now, she is the party's deputy leader. She is not an MP, uh, but she will be leading the party. Elizabeth May, as we know, has served as leader of the party since 2006. That's a long time to be the leader of a political party. So she made that announcement, and she says that she promised her daughter three years ago that the 2019 election would be her last as party leader though not necessarily her last as a member of Parliament. She explained that decision to reporters.
4: I'll leave it to others for how I get to be remembered. I don't feel, I, I don't feel that I'm actually leaving, uh, not leaving national politics. I'm not leaving the Parliament of Canada. Uh, and I do hope to continue to play a constructive role, and particularly in the leadership race to come, uh, in, uh, obviously, I'll maintain neutrality throughout the race, but I want to encourage people who voted Green to think about getting involved, join the party, help us pick our new leader, speak up for what you want to see in the next leader of the Green Party of Canada.
2: You, you must have, you've been thinking about this kind
4: of stuff. I, I guess what I think is, is an important achievement so far, and I still have more time to serve in Parliament, I've always kept my word and I've never lied. And I think that's important. That is Elizabeth May
1: as she's stepping down as leader of the Green Party effective immediately, she said, but she will still be an MP in the House of Commons. And despite not being the head of the party, she also explained to reporters that she will still be the designated leader inside the House of
4: Commons. What means that as in the Parliament of Canada, uh, People will recognize, uh, particularly in, in rotations of statements and so on, moments of shared recognition of events. I'll be the designated leader in the House to speak to issues, but I want always, because we're at grassroots and egalitarian party, I have pushed Paul, as you know, you can tell you, Paul Manley spoke uh, more often in the House of Commons in the time that he was there than his predecessor over the same period of time, and she was part of an official party with the right to speak any time. I want Jenica and Paul to be as effective as possible so their constituents see them working hard in the interests of constituents. My role's clear, I'm leader of the Green Party of Canada in the House of Commons. All right. Well, she'll be done at the House of Commons, not outside the House
1: of Commons, as you heard there. As for their leadership convention, that will be held next October in Charlottetown, which I thought was a bit of an interesting choice, right? When two out of the three MPs that you have in your caucus are elected from Vancouver Island and kind of BC has been uh, what what you've been known for, for your support. The fact that they're having it in Atlantic Canada, I think, is also a nod to the fact that the only other MP that they got elected in the uh, last election uh, was someone from New Brunswick so is that the hope to build more support obviously in the Atlantic Canada area there so what do you think about Elizabeth May's decision there's also been some speculation that she might uh, want to become the speaker of the House of Commons she herself has expressed an interest in that job so does this clear the way for her to do that what does that mean for you know her next steps Uh, perhaps she'll consider going provincial is that on her list either is that on her list as well the transit strike continues here in Metro Vancouver, which means no overtime for maintenance workers at the Coast Mountain Bus Company. And as well, bus drivers continue to not wear their uniforms. And it is resulting in impacts to the system. Uh, for instance, today, as you've been hearing, there are six C bus sailings that have been cancelled as a result of, of that. And there is some concern that later in the week we're going to start to see some Uh, bus maintenance issues as well and we know we've heard from both sides on this and they both categorize them, the two sides, as being far apart in the negotiations. But now the head of the TransLink Mayor's Council is publicly urging those two sides to get back to the bargaining table and end this labor dispute. But Jonathan Cote says meeting the union's demands is also going to impact major projects in their 10 year transportation plan, and that includes Skytrain expansion. Now, we know there are no reported meetings scheduled between the two sides here. And in fact, Uniformer is going to be responding to some of what they have heard from Jonathan Cote coming up in a few minutes. But right now, uh, Mr. Cote and chair of the TransLink Mayor's Council joins us to talk more about this. Thank you very much for being here.
5: No, well, thank you for having me on the show.
1: Why did you feel the need today to kind of come out and talk about this?
5: Yeah, well, you know, I think uh, residents in the, across the region are, are really concerned about the, the escalation and, and the labour dispute. And so many people in, in the Metro Vancouver region rely on, on our, our transit system. Uh, furthermore, you know, I think the, the Unifor leadership uh, o- over the weekend uh, put out suggestions that uh, that we scale back our, our expansion in, in our bus service uh, to, to help pay for, for their wage demands. And that has a really big impact on the mayor's tenure vision. In what way? well if uh, if we were to fund uh, the the six hundred million dollar gap uh, there uh, that that could actually eliminate all of the bus service increase that that we had planned over over, over the next few years and what we 're talking about is, is buses in every community in Metro Vancouver what we're talking about is, is not being able to hire the the 1, new bus operators in, in the Metro Vancouver region that uh, that we need to be able to, to provide the service but also we also need to, to provide better working conditions for for the bus drivers in our system
1: so the- And how do we do that? How do we make all that happen?
5: well you know i I think uh, we need to get both sides back to back to the table and find uh, find a, a reasonable solution to to this labor labor dispute uh, i 'm not at the negotiating table, and that 's not my role, but my understanding is the coast mountain bus company is is putting forward uh, you know offers that are are actually exceeding a lot of other public sector uh, w- wage increases there and I think that 's a, a reasonable place to, to start to to continue the discussions but ultimately we need both parties to to get uh, back to the table because uh, if this becomes pro- prolonged or more escalated, really everyone is going to lose in that situation, and the biggest loser is going to be our transit riders.
1: So are you communicating with like Coast Mountain Bus Company? Is that where your information is coming from, or have you also talked to Unifor?
5: Yeah, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, the mayor's council is not sitting directly at uh, at the negotiating table, and that is not our role in in, in this dispute. Uh, there, you know, a lot of the information that that I'm dealing with is the exact same information that everyone in the public is getting, both from Unifor and and the Coast Mountain Countin, Mountain Mountain coast mountain bus company Uh, but really what i'm here to say you know on on behalf of the the mayor's council is we need both parties to get back to the table find a way to to be able to resolve this 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 dispute because this has huge impacts on our transportation system and ultimately we want to get back to to rolling out transit expansion in in the region and uh and move beyond this labor dispute
1: is there any role though that the mayor's council does play potentially in helping get this settled is there anything that the mayor's council can do
5: you know, I, you know, I think uh, our important role at, at this stage is, is really encouraging the parties to, to get back at the table and, uh, and be very mindful of the, the very negative impacts that uh, the, that a transit striker will have on, on transit users and uh, really that, that both parties uh, need to be, need to be motivated and should be motivated to resolve this.
1: Have you been concerned at all, like, when you hear about what the uh, situation is, like, what it is that, say, the the bus drivers and the maintenance workers are complaining about? Because it does seem like it's a system that is very reliant on overtime to make things work.
5: Yeah, well, you know, I'm I'm a regular transit user and I have a, a ton of respect for uh, for the hard job that uh, that our transit operators and, and the maintenance workers do to uh, to, to make our, our transit system work. And I, I I do believe they deserve a wage increase. They deserve uh, a, a fair settlement here, and I think that needs to needs to be on the table. But we can't undermine our ability to to expand our transit service, buy more buses, hire more drivers to help relieve those working conditions uh, with uh, you know really with with the wage demands that are being put on the table.
1: Right. But how are you going to expand that system, hire those drivers if you can't attract people with the wages that are currently being offered when you compare them to what they can get elsewhere?
5: Yeah, well, you know, I think the the reality is in the past two years, uh, TransLink has hired uh, a thousand, thousand operators and we've had more than 10,000 people submit applications. So the reality is the the wage structures that uh, that has been that are existing today and the the ones we there, we think are very competitive and actually will attract uh, people uh, to become become drivers. So, uh, you know, we you know, I, I think TransLink is in a position that no, we do have a, a wage structure that is is going to attract the the the, uh, the drivers and operators that that we need.
1: Now, what about worker safety? Have you been hearing those concerns from bus drivers in particular?
5: Yeah, well, you know, I think uh, I think the union and and Coast Mountain have actually worked very well well together to to help uh, work on on addressing uh, bus safety safety issues. Uh, you know, the the new seats that are being put in that provide a lot more protection to bus drivers. Uh, the union and and the Coast Mountain bus company have been working very collaboratively uh, to, to together to to see those installed in uh, uh, and, and phased into into all of the buses there. So, you know, I think no doubt, uh, you know, the safety of, of our operators that are out there on the on public line is is hugely important. And I don't think is that's not central to uh, to the dispute we're having here. And I actually think that's an example where, where the union and the and the bus company have worked very well together to, right. to help uh, work on addressing those issues.
1: One of the things that I've heard which I think is central to this dispute has to do with break times for a lot of the bus drivers and guaranteeing that they, not just saying these are the recommended times, but guaranteeing that they get some break time in there. What can be done about that? Is there any role that TransLink would play or, or the Mayor's Council would play in helping with that?
5: Yeah, well, you know, no doubt. My understanding is the the Coast Mountain Bus Company is is uh, is working to to address that through through these negotiations. But really, the bottom line is we need to actually get more bus drivers and more buses on the road uh, to provide more predictable and reliable bus service in, in the region. And that that is actually central and key to to being able to to improve the working conditions of of, of the bus operators.
1: So, is there money in the ten-year plan to do that though for all these new buses and all these new bus drivers?
5: We do. You know, our plan was over the next uh, next two years to hire over 1,300 new bus operators in, in the region and expand our, our bus service uh, across there. Obviously, uh, you know, we have to see what, uh, what, what the settlements uh, are involved here and the financial impact that will have, have on there. but we had always contemplated over, over the next few years seeing a significant increase, and we'd always contemplated uh, seeing an increase in wages for the bus operators because we, we think they deserve it. Having said that, we weren't anticipating such a large wage demand
1: right okay so you're saying there is some money there just not as much as what they're asking for
5: yeah, you know, definitely we we have always contemplated that uh, that, but I, you know, I think the, the expectation was would be that the, the wage demands would be in line with uh, with, with other public sector sector unions and, and settlements that have, have occurred, and I think the the offers that have put on the table actually exceed that. So to me, I think those should be really good starting points to to finding a negotiated settlement here.
1: Right, but these aren't necessarily public sector workers. These aren't government employees. These are workers who work for Translink.
5: Yeah, you know, no doubt it's uh, it is a little bit of a different dynamic, but the reality is, uh, you know, they they provide a public service and ultimately are, are funded through through transit fares and, and and property property taxes. So to really say this isn't a public service, I I think isn't isn't completely accurate either.
1: So are you saying then that it the way things stand now, it doesn't sound like a deal is possible? You're saying there's really not enough money in the ten-year plan to give the workers what they want.
5: Yeah, you know, I I think a a deal is possible, but I think ultimately we need to get both parties back at the the table. Uh, You know, ultimately, if we need to get a mediator involved, that could be very helpful. But we need to get the parties at the table because there is going to be a a resolution to the strike. But I think the question is, uh, how much pain does does the region, how much pain does uh, do do transit users have to go through to get there? And to me, if we can get to that resolution before uh, before getting to that point, ultimately that's that's the successful goal we're working at because. If this becomes prolonged, it's, uh, it's everyone is going to lose in that situation.
1: All right, Mayor Cote, thank you very much for your time.
5: Okay, thank you. That's
1: Jonathan Cote. He's the Mayor of New Westminster, but also Chair of the TransLink Mayor's Council. What is it about this next story that just seems to engage so many people? We're talking, of course, about the otter. And the koi, because that story is back in a big way, because once again, an otter is being blamed for targeting koi that are in the pond at the Dr. Sun Yat-sen classical garden in Vancouver. As Jill Bennett tells us now, it comes about a year after multiple fish were killed by an otter that had also infiltrated the pond.
6: Once again, the koi at the Dr. Sun Yetsen garden had to be fished out and rescued after an intruder broke in and started treating the pond like a seafood buffet.
7: Two of them were eaten right to the gill plate, so the entire fish was eaten, uh, completely gone, all of it. We know for a fact there's no entrance points uh, from a, like a sewer or water line or drainage line into the garden that isn't sealed.
6: It was almost exactly one year ago the garden entrances were reinforced after an identical heist. Last November an otter somehow got into the garden pond and killed 11 koi including a 50-year-old fish affectionately known as Madonna. Can't
7: confirm whether or not it was the same otter um, but it was definitely an otter.
6: Attempts to trap the mischievous mammal have not worked. The first otter became an international sensation dividing people into two camps team koi and team otter. Now people are again being asked to take sides.
8: Funny you have to close because of an uh, otter, I-, I like that.
7: Must be hungry.
5: I would hope that they would trap the otter and take it where it needs to be, um, so that it's not killing the koi.
7: It's a bit of a good news, bad news story. I think the, the bad news is of course that the, the garden is very disappointed that they lost some of the koi. The good news is that we were able to react much faster because we had a really good idea of what would happen.
6: Six mature koi weighing 5 to 12 pounds each were killed this time. The survivors have all been removed from the pond and will live at a facility in Richmond until it's safe to return. But with this koi killer still on the lamb, will it ever be?
7: Have it happen once, we thought it was a one-off, but this is proving that you know this pretty, these otters are pretty clever, so this could be an annual thing. Jill Dennett, Global News.
1: I mean, of course, the otter's pretty clever. It found a food source that it can just go in there and feast on as many fish as it wants. Uh, And if it, it isn't the same otter, then I'm sure it told its friends come on, I got a great place for a feeding ground. I think that's a very natural animal thing to have happen. Now, Howard Norman, uh, you heard him actually in Jill's report there, is the director of parks for the Vancouver Park Board, and he also appeared on the John McComb Show this morning to talk about essentially at this point, what does the park board know about this elusive and apparently ravenous otter?
7: Well, we're not actually sure if it's male or female. We don't know if it's the same one. We just know it's aggressive, it's Coy, it's sneaky. <laughs> uh, I'm not 100% sure exactly how it got in the garden. In the past, we um, the gates were always open during the daytime. Yeah. We did put metal plates on the gate at f- up to four feet, uh, hoping that would prevent the otter from, from entering the garden. And right. we put clo- automatic closers on the gates as well. But sometimes they get left ajar. Um, all our pipes are sealed off with grate, so they nothing can come in or out as far as the otter, because they're notorious for going through pipes. Right, um, And in this case, My guess, my best educated guess is it it may have just climbed over. I mean, they're long, they're lanky, they're river otters. uh, They know how to climb. They love being on land more than they'd like to be in water. So it's it's crafty, um, I have to admit.
1: It's a clever otter, isn't it? So since the otter has struck again, what exactly is the park board planning to do to stop it from just continuing to feast on the garden's prized koi?
7: Plan A was just like, get the koi out of there. Let's, yeah. get, let's get our trapper back to see if we can catch the, the otter and have it relocated. Um, we had no success catching it. Uh, we did lose some koi. Uh, the plan is, we, which we had already planned the last time, and this is a, uh, we're putting new gates on the entire Sun Sen surrounding area, so the plaza, both entrances, and that was in the works already. So that gate will be uh, designed so that actually we'll keep out the otter. And that's not really what we had planned it to be, but it just turned out that way. Yeah. So that will be very helpful. I can't see any other way it gets in.
1: That is Howard Norman. Uh, He is the director of parks for the Vancouver Park Board talking about this hungry, very hungry otter. Clearly, it's finding another way to get in. I mean, they're doing everything you heard him describe. They put the plates up, like metal plates on the gate up to four feet, but somehow this thing is still climbing over. They've got grates on all the pipes so that it can't be coming into the pipes or anything like that. Still, this otter is getting in. And you know what really got me about the story this time? Have you seen the picture? Have you seen the picture of the otter that they got on the surveillance camera? It just kills me. It just, like I said earlier, it's like something out of the movie Zootopia is what's going on at the Dr. Sun Yat-sen Garden. We have also done this as part of our question of the day today. Question being, okay, the koi at the Dr. Sun Yat-sen classical Chinese gardener under siege from a hungry otter... How should the park board solve this problem? Should they, you know what, just let the otter win and move the koi permanently? Should they continue to try to reinforce the park to keep the otter out? Or should they have permanent otter traps? Like, should they be going all out to catch this otter? Lots of votes on this. And you'll find them uh, at CKNW on Twitter or at SimiSara980. Right now, 45% of the people who voted are saying, just let the otter win and permanently move the koi somewhere else. 30% saying permanent otter traps... Get rid of that otter for good. 24% are saying they need to do more work to reinforce the park. Where do you come down on this? Well, you can cast your vote on our hot question of the day. We'd love it if you did. But hey, how about this? Let's also open up the phone lines here because I know people have thoughts on this. 604-280-9898. 604-280-9898. So this is twice now. Twice in the span of a little over a year where you've got this otter problem eating koi at the Dr. Sun Yat-sen classical Chinese garden. What should they do to solve this problem? Should they maybe just give up and go, all right, well, clearly the otter have found this good place to feed. There's nothing we can do. We're just not going to have to have koi here anymore. Or should they be taking more extreme measures? All right, let's get you an update now on this transit strike situation. Once again, we're seeing a lot of back and forth between the two sides here. For instance, just earlier on our show, about an hour ago, we spoke with Jonathan Cote, who's the chair of the TransLink Mayor's Council. Now, he talked to us about the transit strike, and he said that meeting the union's demands at this point would impact major projects in their 10-year transportation plan, and that would include SkyTrain expansion
5: if we were to fund uh, the, the $600 million gap uh, there, uh, that, that could actually eliminate all of the bus service increase that, that we had planned over, over, over the next few years. And what we're talking about is, is buses in every community in Metro Vancouver. What we're talking about is, is not being able to hire the, the 1,300 new bus operators in, in the Metro Vancouver region that, uh, that we need to be able to, to provide the service. But also, we also need to, to provide better working conditions for, for the bus drivers in our system.
1: So then how do we do that? How do we make all that happen?
5: Well, you know, I, I think, uh, we need to get both sides back to, back to the table and find, uh, find a, a reasonable solution to, to this labor labor dispute. Uh, I'm not at the negotiating table and that's not my role, but my understanding is the coast mountain bus company is, is putting forward, uh, you know, offers that are, are actually exceeding a lot of other public sector, uh, w- wage increases there. And I think that's a, a reasonable place to start to, to continue the discussions, but ultimately we need both parties to, to get uh, back to the table because, uh, if this becomes prolonged or more escalated, really everyone is going to lose in that situation, and the biggest loser is going to be our transit riders.
1: That is Jonathan Cote, chair of the Transit Mayor's Council, also the mayor of New Westminster. So he had a lot to say, obviously, as you heard there, but we wanted to get some reaction to this now as well, the idea that by, you know, quote-unquote giving in, to the demands of the uh, union here, then that would kind of imperil the 10-year transportation plan. So joining us for more on this now is Gavin McGarrigal, Western Regional Director of Uniform. Mr. McGarrigal, thanks for being with us.
9: Yeah, happy to be here, Simi. What
1: did you think about what Mr. Cote had to say?
9: Well, I thought it was a very one-sided view from the Mayor's Council, and it didn't uh, take into account the demands that are out there on the passengers right now. With 36% overcrowding and people not being able to get on buses, you know, you can't expand a system where people are left out in the rain and where you can't take care of basic human rights of workers to take a break.
1: They're saying they can't expand the system, though, if they give the workers everything they want.
9: Well I think having a minimum level of break time is just simply a human right. I mean we have not seen that happen for our members. There is still no guaranteed uh, break for people to take to go to the washroom or have something to eat. Uh, that's uh, that's a broken model.
1: Now, they seem to be focusing on, in interviews that management has done, whether it's Mike McDaniel or or hearing from Jonathan Cote, on the wage demands that bus drivers are making. What is the bigger issue, though, from the union side? Is it those wage demands or is it the break times? Because you always bring that up in response.
9: Well, it's, it's all of the issues. We've been saying that from the beginning. It's wages, benefits, and working conditions. I mean, they're they're happy to uh, heap scorn on the drivers for asking for a reasonable wage increase compared uh, apples to apples. Let's compare transit workers in this country to other transit workers in this in this country. Uh, we're not funded by the province. We're funded by uh, the federal government, the provincial government, and the municipalities. So they, they want to heap scorn on the workers, but yet they're strangely silent when it comes to the fact that the head of Coast Mountain Bus Company and of Transit make more money than the Prime Minister of this country. I mean, you know, Kevin Desmond, I believe, is upwards of $500,000 a year. So strangely silent when it comes to those kinds of things. But when it comes to workers saying, hey, what about uh, Toronto Transit? What about Edmonton Transit? The comparison um, doesn't seem to hold up. So it's it's hypocrisy, frankly. And um, I think uh, they need to compare apples to apples like they do with the executives and CEOs.
1: They seem to be comparing worker, you know, transit workers, apples to apples, as being public sector workers. saying public sector workers settled for less than
5: that.
9: Well, again, they're just simply not comparing the actual jobs. They're not comparing the people who work. Uh, if they want to say, uh, let's compare public sector workers, then they want to say that SkyTrain are public sector workers uh, who are skilled trades, who have the exact same credentials, who are working under transit. Why are they paid so much more? So whether they try to compare it that way or they look at apples to apples in terms of people who actually operate transit systems across the country, um, you know, again, they're, they're trying to mislead the public. Um, the reality is we're not under the public uh, service mandate uh, transit. Think is a devolved arm of the three levels of government, and it's got to be competitive uh, with other transit agencies. Uh, I don't know how they somehow uh, talk about comparing with other transit agencies when it suits them, but when it doesn't suit them, all of a sudden they're back to uh, misleading comparisons.
1: Right, but Mr. McGregor, why do it this way? Like, why negotiate back and forth in the media? They want to get back to the table. They keep saying that. Why not at least talk face-to-face?
9: Well, the main thing is it's uh, known as a negotiating table, so you have to be prepared to negotiate. And the only message that we've heard from the company is that uh, they're prepared for, to have us come back to the table and agree to all of their demands. Well, we haven't heard from them and the signal that we're looking for is that they're prepared to start to address these issues, to start to make sure that drivers can have some le- minimum level of brakes, that they need to deal with the skilled trades and equities, and they need to deal with the, the fact that transit operators are paid uh, so much less here than other major Canadian cities. We know we're not going to get everything we want. I mean, we know negotiation, you you have to uh, give and take. And our offer for the drivers uh, doesn't get us fully to the Toronto Transit uh, rate. It doesn't get us there overnight either. But it certainly starts to close the gap. And that's the kind of signal we're looking for. And we can be back at the table in a matter of hours as soon as they indicate they're ready to talk about those things. So far, they've told us they're not.
1: So you're saying that that's what it would take, that if they want you back at the table, and there certainly is a lot of public pressure to get Unifor back to the table. Do you think it would take some willingness to move?
9: Yeah, I mean, last week, again, they're engaged in a a bit of a media campaign, which is why we're compelled to respond. I mean, they issued a press release in the morning saying we want to go back to the table, but yet their lead negotiator had not even contacted me. Uh, When I did contact the lead negotiator to ask had there been any change in their position, the answer I got back was no, not really. So... You know, I mean, if they want to play the spin game and blame the workers who make the system run, that's fine, but it's not going to get this thing resolved. And ultimately, I'd like to know what what is Coast Mountain Bus Company and Transic and the Mayor's Council's plan to resolve this? Are they just going to blame the workers or are they going to actually uh, get a mandate to address these issues?
1: So what happens now, Mr. McGregor? I know we've talked to you about the next steps in the strike. You've been holding steady with the new uniforms and, and, and the no uniforms and the overtime ban. Have you talked about next steps at this point?
9: we have. Our leadership team is uh, continuing to review all of those items. Right now, we're focused on uh, speaking more to the public and uh, we'll be wrapping up our efforts in the public. Uh, I've just talked to the maintenance uh, local union president and uh, he anticipates by mid to late uh, this week, we're going to see more buses affected, uh, more C-bus cancellations. So, you know, we're asking the public now to support their drivers. We know our drivers are telling us on the road every day. They have uh, lots of passenger support coming up and supporting them and we want to make sure that the decision makers understand that um you know with the public supports the drivers and, and these uh, issues that we've raised are reasonable i don't know workers in any industry anywhere simi that go to work and are told you we can't even guarantee you five minutes break 10 minutes break i mean it's actually inhumane
1: what did you think then about the fact that now you've got the mayor's council out there urging kind of the the line from the coast mountain bus company
9: Well, I think the mayors ultimately have to answer to their citizens, and you know we've stood side-by-side. I've actually stood side-by-side with Mayor Cote um, trying to win the transit referendum years ago. Uh, I'm quoted on the Cure Congestion campaign that they have. We are big fans of transit expansion, always have been. Uh, We've been pushing for it and standing side-by-side with the mayors because we know that the citizens uh, think it's so important. So ultimately, the mayors are going to have to be responsible to their citizens, and their citizens want to see expanded transit, but also... Uh, where they're not crammed into buses like sardines, where they're not standing out in the rain, and and where the drivers uh, and maintenance workers are treated with respect.
1: So what would it take then to get Unifor back to the table? Do you need to hear, okay, let's negotiate, let's work on this?
9: Yeah, I mean, what they've said is they've rejected our last pass as a basis for settlement. We've clearly rejected their last pass. So if they say, look, we've got a renewed mandate, let's come back and talk, we can be at the table in a matter of hours.
1: All right, Mr. McGarigal, thank you for your time. Yes, thanks very much, Timmy. That's Gavin McGarrigle, the Western Regional Director of Unifor. Let's update you now on a story that we brought you a couple of weeks ago here on the show. Remember that story about how Surrey Council was considering a bylaw amendment uh, to make it illegal to sleep overnight in RVs and campers on city streets? At the time that it came up for discussion at that council meeting, it was sent back to staff for more information. Well, round two is going to go tonight. Uh, They have come back to say there were 27 complaints in the last year about people sleeping in RVs, but 25 of them were resolved. Now to talk more about this story, we're joined now by Global News senior reporter Janet Brown. Hi, Janet. Good afternoon, Simi. Round two is
10: right. The same discussion that took place two weeks ago at Surrey Council, and it all involves parking and camping and sleeping overnight in RVs and campers on city streets. Now, this bylaw amendment would also make it illegal, Simi, for such vehicles from parking for more than three hours between 6 in the morning and 10 at night near parks, schools, churches, or homes, and the vehicles could also not be occupied while parked there either. And as you say, when it was discussed at Council two weeks ago, uh, there was a lot of discussion around this, obviously, because this is very, um, you know, divisive with a lot of people, and uh, yes, there are complaints, and yes, there are concerns about housing in the City of Surrey. So Council asked for more information from staff, and now it's come back, as you say, that there were only 27 complaints in the last year, 25 were resolved, and six involved the same person. So with this new information, City Councilor Brenda Locke is saying, so why are we even discussing this when there were only 27 complaints? She doesn't feel like there's even an issue in the city of Surrey.
2: Here's more of what she had to say. It's very puzzling. I I, um, I don't understand why it's coming forward. I uh, don't support it at all. And uh, it's very much directed at people that are are uh, homeless and in need of housing. And so I don't understand
4: where this is coming from.
2: That is interesting
1: though, Janet, as you say, 27 complaints in a year, you're talking about a city of half a million people.
10: Yeah, it doesn't seem like many, does it? No. Um, those are the documented complaints and i know uh, the glo- uh, global tv camera crew a few weeks ago simi they drove around the city of surrey when the uh, story first broke trying to find rvs parked on city streets and i remember hearing they were only able to find two so they were a little confused too what what all the fuss is about um there and you know what's really strange about this too i asked councillor brenda Locke who was the first person to bring this to council? Who was concerned about yeah. this, if, if there's such a big problem? And Brenda Locke says she's not even sure where it originated from. Did it originate with city staff? Uh, did it originate with another councillor or the mayor? She, she's not sure. And really, I can't seem to get to the bottom of it either. City staff did originally say um, this came to light because of the number of complaints from businesses and residents in the city of Surrey, but these numbers, only 27, really don't support that, just in my view. Uh, We did hear from Mayor Doug McCallum last time, too, when this came back to when this was first before council. Um, He said that uh, there was an escalating issue in the city of Surrey, and uh, he said the issue of homeless residents sleeping in vehicles has, quote, popped up in Crescent Beach where he lives ah. so those were his comments at the time so I don't know did it originate with the mayor perhaps and he went to staff and then they brought it to council I don't know I'm I'm, I'm still trying to get to the bottom of this right but so
1: we know that Brenda Locke has said that she's not going to vote for this obviously she's going to vote against it do we know how any of the other councillors are thinking at this point Jack Hundile is also
10: on board uh, with Brenda Locke, Linda Annis agreed as well as well as independent councillor Stephen Pettigrew. Uh, we also heard last time from the gentleman who runs the Surrey Urban Mission. And uh, he said it was uplifting to see Council last time uh, thoughtfully consider this proposal and put it off instead of simply approving it two weeks ago. Uh, but he too, Mike Musgrove is his name, he didn't understand where this was coming from. Yeah. And he sort of questioned the timing of this now that we're going into the wetter and colder months of the year uh, because of the housing crisis in the city, because of the number of homeless in the city of Surrey. And uh, we heard from Brenda Locke last week, too, uh, The latest homeless count in Surrey has the official number of homeless people in the city at roughly 600. But she says care providers and others who provide services feel that that's actually three times higher. She says it could be somewhere between 1,500 and 1,800 people who are homeless in the city of Surrey. So a lot of people are asking why this bylaw now, why at this time of the year, So we'll see what happens tonight at Surrey City Council. All right,
1: we will. Janet, thank you for this. You're welcome, Simi. That is Janet Brown, our Global News senior reporter. She'll be watching carefully tonight as Surrey Council is meeting. It is round two, as we said, for this bylaw amendment that is once again up for discussion on whether or not they should make it illegal to sleep overnight in RVs and campers on city streets. Oh, We're going to talk now about a story that, boy, generated a lot of discussion in the workplace this morning, and I'm sure it has where you work as well. This has to do with the CEO of McDonald's, you know, Mickey D's, Golden Arches. Well, the CEO has essentially been pushed out of the company because he violated company policy by engaging in a consensual relationship with an employee. And I know they're saying consensual, but keep in mind, he was the CEO, meaning any employee was somebody who worked essentially underneath him in the hierarchy there. And that, of course, is coming from the company itself. So the fast food giant, says the former president CEO, Steve Easterbrook, demonstrated poor judgment and that McDonald's forbids managers from having any kind of a romantic relationship with direct or indirect subordinates. And so he did email all the employees. And in that email, Easterbrook acknowledged that, yes, he had had a relationship with an employee and said it was a mistake. So we thought upon hearing that today, you know, a little public service message, letting people know, not a good idea if you're in a position of power, but also what? kind of policy does your workplace have? And what is your responsibility for knowing that policy? Joining us now to talk about it is Edward Matej, an employment lawyer and associate at Sam Fear to Markin. Edward, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Uh, I do think it's good for us to talk about this today because you think people just don't know what their company policy is on this subject?
8: Yeah, uh, there's a lot of people that um, may not have taken a closer look, uh, as close a look into their employee handbooks and the company policy as they maybe should have.
1: Do you think also it's kind of like a nudge, nudge, wink, wink thing? Like maybe they won't look or people, oh, people see other people doing it, so therefore it must be okay?
8: So uh, the company generally uh, has a responsibility to enforce the rules that they have. And uh, regardless of whether it's written in a company uh, policy handbook, uh, if they don't enforce it, Uh, then that can actually provide a defense for the person, uh, the employee uh, to continue doing it. And that can be a defense that can be used as a shield.
1: Right. That's
8: for employees though. But what if you're the boss? Uh, If you're the boss, uh, in in a case like this where um, the CEO had resigned, uh, he was, my understanding is that he had been uh, forced to resign by the board who had heavily suggested that he do so Uh, within uh, that's within an American jurisdiction within British Columbia and Canada in general, with some exceptions, a employer can let an employee go for any reason. Uh, any reason? Sorry, my apologies. Uh, for no reason. Uh, there are certain prohibited grounds which are protected by the uh, human yeah, rights code. You scared code. me there for a second. Okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, do you, so do you have to know what the policy is? like? Can you plead ignorance of the policy? Like if you're a manager and you start you know, dating somebody or have a relationship with somebody who, uh, maybe directly or indirectly reports to you, what if you say, well, I didn't know, nobody told me what the policy was.
8: So there is an expectation that you read the policy. Uh, nonetheless, the employer can let you go, uh, with no reason, uh, Hmm. as long as they provide you adequate severance. And that's, that's the important part about the Canadian jurisdiction, about, uh, the BC, uh, employment laws and Canada in general, that, uh, In most cases, as long as you're provided adequate notice, you can be let go with no reason. And so the question of whether you followed company policy uh, becomes a little bit more important when you're fired with just cause. And at that point, you can start looking at the more factual reasons as to why you were let go.
1: Right. But they don't, as you say, technically even have to give a reason provided they give you severance, notice, all that kind of stuff.
8: Yeah, that's exactly correct.
1: Interesting. Okay. Is this, do you think, one of those areas, like, are we slowly learning this to kind of about relationships in the workplace? Uh, this used to be something that, you know, I always heard the saying, don't fish off the company pier, but that was an informal thing. Are we finally figuring out that this is a bad idea?
8: <laughs> I mean, in a, regardless of what your opinions are on the hashtag MeToo movement, it's incidences like this that at least uh, show that there is movement and uh, light being shown on company policy and how the company views its own liabilities in these situations. And as you'd mentioned, McDonald already had a policy that you couldn't be dating a manage, uh, subordinate in a managerial role. Right. And so this is the result of that.
1: And they keep saying consensual, but that doesn't really matter, does it?
8: Absolutely. Within, uh, from an optical standpoint, at least, uh, there is an enormous power imbalance between the CEO of a company and an employee. Is there ever is that ever consensual? Then, I mean, that's I, I think that's a, a much more factual based argument that that's difficult to generalize on. But th- there's definitely issues um, that exist within there within that dynamic and relationship that should be observed very closely.
1: All right now, in your experience as an employment lawyer on this issue, have you ever had to deal with cases like this? Like, does it come up?
8: Does it come up where? Uh, somebody doesn't follow general company policies and are let go as a consequence? Uh, yes. yes.
1: Yeah. So what about when it has to do with relationships with employees? Does that still come up in this day and age, or are we? do you think are we getting better at this?
8: So uh, sexual harassment in the workplace as well as um, companies that are uncomfortable with personal decisions that employees make within the workplace happens all the time, and termination is one possible solution to that. Uh, there's other censures that an uh, employer can put on a uh, on an employee, including verbal warnings, written warnings, um, that eventually do lead up to termination.
1: What advice then, Edward, would you give to a manager or a company if they're thinking, you know what, we, we actually don't have a policy on this and we probably should put a policy into place. How do they go about making sure they do that? Like, what kind of wording should they use? And how do they make sure everybody knows about it?
8: I think the most important part is to... Be clear in what the policy is. Uh, vagueness, while uh, while convenient in generating the company policy, will ultimately hurt you when you are trying to enforce it. Uh, furthermore, be consistent in your enforcement of it. Otherwise, when it comes time to try and enforce it, the employee may say, look, you didn't enforce it before. That made me think that it was all right to continue doing an action right. that you are now telling me is... Inappropriate.
1: So when you're talking about vagueness and specificity, you're saying be as specific as possible, as in do not have a relationship with an employee that works for you. Like, do you have to actually put it that bluntly?
8: I mean, making it clear more than anything else. And I believe from what I understand of the McDonald's policy... Uh, there is no contention that the policy was that managers could not have relationships with their subordinates, regardless of whether it was consensual or not.
1: Right. So that was very clear. And obviously, the CEO agreed that he he because he said he did do this and he knew he wasn't supposed to.
8: That's right. My understanding is that there was no contention over that particular issue. Right. OK, so be clear.
1: What advice then would you have to anybody who... You know what? Christmas party time is coming up, right? Office Christmas parties. That is a landmine of problems right there, Edward. And I've been to a few in years past where I've seen this for myself. So what advice would you give to managers in particular, if they see something happening, or maybe they catch wind of something going on in the workplace, perhaps a relationship that they think, uh, this shouldn't be happening?
8: To managers that, uh, see their own subordinates taking these types of issues
1: can they say something? Like if you're a manager and you see this, are you allowed to go, hey, are you guys dating? You know that you're not allowed to do that, right? Like, are you allowed to as a manager say that?
8: I mean, insofar as what I'd mentioned before, that you have to be consistent in your enforcement of the rules. You can't be selective um, because then that leads to a whole bunch of other issues at that point and who you're enforcing uh, your uh, power on and who you're letting slide by. So- It is important that if it is within the realm of your responsibilities to enforce company policy and you see somebody that is not following company policy, then you have to enforce it. Otherwise, again, as I mentioned, that can be used as a shield against you later.
1: Can you, if you haven't, say, in the past, done it, can you say, okay, guys, we know we haven't done this in the past. We are now going to be enforcing this policy?
8: If this is a policy that you want to start enforcing, it's better to enforce it as early as possible. So you have a... um, a, a long and solid record, as long and as solid a record as you can have um, until something happens that then gets disputed.
1: Right. So it sounds like, Edward, that the best thing for an employer or an HR person or a manager here is to just communicate as much as possible about what the policy is.
8: I mean, it's important, as I'd mentioned before, it, it comes down to being clear and to it being unambiguous. Uh, where there's ambiguity, there's space for argument that what I did wasn't so bad, or what I did wasn't actually against company policy. Where there's a record of a rule being enforced consistently uh, and uh, enforced the same each time it comes up, then that just makes it far easier for an employer to say, look, these are the rules. We've made it very clear to you what the rules are. You've decided to break those rules, and that unfortunately leads to a disciplinary measure that we're now entitled to uh, put on you
1: as we saw with the McDonald's case, right? Uh, Edward, thank you so much for explaining to us today. My pleasure. Hopefully companies out there can pay attention to that and avoid the same kind of problem that McDonald's is facing today. Now, let's talk about this other story. You think you've got goals? Listen, if I can just get to my workout a couple of times a week and I I figure I've really accomplished something, that is nothing compared to this next person that we're going to tell you all about. Imagine competing in 20, let alone one, no, no, 20 Ironman competitions in less than one month. Yeah, sounds crazy, right? Like who would do that? Well, it turns out Shanda Hill from Vernon actually did do that. It's called a double-deca triathlon. You have to swim 76 kilometers in a pool, bike 3,600 kilometers on a looped circuit, and then you run 844 kilometers on a loop nuts right this race which took place in mexico started on october the 5th it finished on november the 2nd so just a couple of days ago and our nikki reitmeyer caught up with shanda hill who just returned home
0: the owner of the gym in vernon where you work out he called you a superhuman do you feel that way do you feel like a superhuman no not at all (laughs) Now, in all fairness, though, only 14 athletes began the race that you completed. You were one of just a handful of athletes that actually completed that race.
2: I think I think I feel lucky that my heart and my mind were in that race. And when you have the two of those working together, I, I don't think there's any, you know, reasonable limits of what you can actually achieve.
0: It truly is hard to fathom that you ran, you swam, and you biked the equivalent distance of Vancouver to ottawa and you did it in less than 26 days so when you talk about putting your mind to something and achieving it i mean my goodness you are the walking definition of that looking back on what you accomplished are you surprised at all about what you were able to complete i I never you never go into a race feeling like you have it in the bag but you do i
2: always approach things thinking you know if if anybody else can do it you know, there's there's no reason why I shouldn't be able to at least give it a whack and, you know, be somewhat successful because I think that often we sell ourselves short on what we're able to do in life. And, and I quite enjoy the
0: challenge. And you certainly seem to face challenge. I saw some of the pictures that you posted online Pictures of your feet that are not for the faint of heart. These are pictures of your feet uh, that are blistered. I mean, they're cut up. It looks like you have a, a chemical burn on your back from swimming in the pool for so long as well. I mean, you had to fight past a lot of physical challenges as you tried to compete in this race.
2: Yes, that's that's definitely true. And some of them you don't you don't perceive going in. We didn't know that the you know that they would be doing shock treatments on the pool when we were there so that's it's something that just comes up and you deal with it or you quit and you know if it was compromising my health and there was long-term damages i i would probably you know throw in the towel but i (laughs) i know that within reason i i'm not doing any long-term damage to the best of my knowledge to my body so you just make the best of the situation of what you can and, and move forward
0: With your feet, though, in the condition that they were in, how did you push yourself to get up the next day, to put back on your running shoes, and to get back out there?
2: I I compared it to 2017 uh, when I'd raced in Mexico, and I'd just come off of doing a a triple Ironman the weekend before and hadn't planned to be racing the deck in Mexico, and I'd, I'd actually had about twice the damage to my feet. And so going in, it's almost like... If you're hiking a mountain and you've been up Mount Everest, every other mountain after that, you know, won't seem as, as large. And so I had this experience in 2017. And so I've been comparing everything else to it. And I go, well, it's not as bad as Mexico 2017. So I think I'm still going to be okay. <laughs> if you can approach almost everything in life with with gratitude for it could always be worse, I think it really makes almost everything easier.
0: It must have been so inspiring when you were competing to see other athletes around you overcoming their own personal challenges, be those physical or be those mental, you know, pushing themselves, pulling themselves back up and helping each other too.
2: I think it it never gets old, Mickey. You see it in every race, large or small, and there's things that are thrown at these athletes, you know that it just it just happens during a race you know and and to watch them struggle through it it lifts you back up and then to and to know that they're there and compassionate for you it's a real sense of family and i think that a lot of the athletes come back year after year and they do it because it's, it's such a unique group of
0: people so where do you go from here What what does the future hold for you now what's your next big competition
2: um, I'm, I'm looking forward to doing uh, Buc-Switzerland next year. It's another DECA. I, I want to fine-tune. I mean, I can jokingly say that DECA is a shorter distance. But, um, you know, doing the 10 Ironmans, I want to get really good at that race because every single DECA that I've done, I've learned something new about my body. And when you can take something and, you know, do it over and over and, and perfect it, that's a distance I'd really like to Perfect.
0: That's awesome. Well, best of luck, and let's stay in touch, because when you come back from that event, I'd love to catch up with you again and see how it went. So congratulations on what you were able to accomplish. Thank you, Nikki. You have a great day. That's nuts, listening to some the of the stuff that she does there. That
1: is Shanda Hill from Vernon. She just did a double-deca triathlon. That's 76 kilometers in a pool, 3,600 kilometers that she biked on a looped circuit. And then she ran 844 kilometers on a loop. Those are not typos, my friends. That is exactly how much she did. Uh, How did she do? 14 athletes began the race. Shanda Hill was one of only eight who finished four men, four women. And of the women, she finished second. Overall, she finished fifth. So congratulations to her. More power. I can't even imagine what that would take out of you to do something like that. But it sounds like she's hooked.